Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 280. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week's show, Trifecta 25, three different stories by three different authors, but all based on some theme. Our theme this week, Eat Me, stories about or at least somehow loosely affiliated with cannibalism. Throughout history, people have eaten each other as a way to appease the gods. Eat that guy. Survive famine. Welp, looks like we're out of baby food. (coughs) Or are we? (coughs) Or exact payback on his enemies. I just totally dumped my boyfriend. In 1563, famous French essayist Michael de Montaigne observed and wrote about three Brazilian cannibals who were taken to France at the invitation of Charles IX. The three men had never left Brazil before, and while the then 13-year-old Charlie IX fixated on their exotic practice of cannibalism, the tribal men were equally shocked and fascinated by the French citizenry, Montaigne says, commenting that some were gorged to the full with things of every sort, while others, quote, were beggars at the doors, emaciated with hunger and poverty. They couldn't wrap their heads around the idea of social inequality. People were people to them. You couldn't be better than anyone else without cilantro and a good baste. Eaters of men, indeed. So, cannibalism, yeah. Our first story this week is Try My Shank by Kenton K. Yee. Mr. Yee's placed poetry and fiction in the Los Angeles Review, Café Iriel, Pank, Hobart, and Uncle John's Bathroom Reader, among other places. A theoretical physicist working in finance, he's starting his second year in Stanford's online novel certificate program. The story was first published in Pink Magazine in May 2012. Our story is read to you by Drabblecast submissions editor and Drabble aficionado Nathan Lee. Check him out at mirrorshards.org. So without further ado, we bring you Try My Shank by Kenton K. Yee. You've been one-legged since the lasso trap. Your personals ad says kids undecided, even though you desperately want to. When the maitre d' shows you to your blind date's table, you are pleased with her prominent forehead and symmetrical face. She has potential. Before you can sit, her eyes drift to where your missing leg would be and snap back to your face. She forces a smile. You talk menu. She likes the braised shank. You are believed they have salads. I ate barbecue last weekend, you lie. I'm in a tuna salad mood. We don't do fins or hooves, the waiter says. How about torn hamstring on lettuce topped with blocked arteries, or liver simmered in stomach juice? Seahorse salad, you say, and close the menu. You've never had seahorse, but you do the seahorse, a side split by a one-legged dancer for a living. Salad number three the waiter says, writing slowly. She orders the braised shank on garlic spinach. You sip your wine and give the weather report. You're not ready to explain how a fact-checker for a weekly tabloid became the warm-up act at Ole Ole six nights a week. 
Your specialty is one-legged pole dancing. The tips are fantastic. So, you're a journalist, she says. Uh-oh. She must believe all those lies in your ad. I freelance, you say, spearing a seahorse. It tastes like black licorice. Cool. My brother consults. She cuts a bite of shank and chews. How's your seahorse? Reminded of the seahorse, you twirl the spine of your wine glass. Perfect, you say. Try? She looks straight through your thick lenses into your eyes. I had three dates with a weirdo who wouldn't admit that he'd never eaten human flesh, she said. I hope you're not one of those. You squint. I was raised Catholic. Mom didn't cook body parts at home, but I partake now. You rummage your brain for suitable conversation. Ole Ole features midget wrestling, ex-basketball players stripping, and pole dancing. Your act closes with the seahorse. If the crowd is drunk enough, this flourish earns you a shower of coins and bills. You doubt this would impress. Try my shank, she said. The meat is falling off the bone. You scrape off a sliver and chew. To the casual diner, braised shank tastes like the beef pot roast served in high school cafeterias, but you taste the tang of a single mother who lost her shin when her biker boyfriend sped into a double-parked ice cream truck. You smile for the first time. Delicious, you say. I love the dissonance. She smiles back. You notice dimples when she smiles. She leans forward and spears a seahorse. I live for flesh. My last boyfriend and I tried a new species every weekend. You worry that she had a white-bred childhood and would never understand your scars. When six, you stepped onto a lasso trap during a Cub Scout outing and dangled upside down against an oak tree for two nights before a bird watcher sighted you in his binoculars. They amputated your gangrened right leg to save your life. You refused prosthetics and learned to hop. In high school, you competed against the best soccer players. You are as able as any biped. She doesn't know any of this. She saw only that your one leg is thicker than two normal legs. You clear your throat and lean forward, only to hear your voice squeak. You up for some something-something next Saturday? She reaches for her glass and crinkles that prominent forehead. Maybe she sees you as a bouncing pogo stick. Maybe she doesn't want to dance the yo-yo at her wedding. Maybe she didn't hear you. Oh, I, I won't embarrass you, you say. Let me walk you home tonight. Oh, no, she says. I wasn't worried about that, not at all. I'm a physical therapist, and my brother had his leg blown off in Iraq, too. Now you worry. A physical therapist that eats amputated shanks might like your nub a tad too much. But seahorses have limited opportunities. So you lean back and point your thick leg between hers. She doesn't scream. Well then, you say. Ever had a Bloody Mary of your own blood? I know a place. And you know that place. It's Ole Ole. story comes to us from Anthony J. Rapino, and it's called Morning Espresso in the Church of Me. Mr. Rapino resides in northeastern Pennsylvania, somewhere between the concrete of the city and the trees of the forest. 
On occasion, you'll find him moderating the feverish battles between the creatures of these two arenas. Whose side he's on is anyone's guess. His debut novel, Soundtrack to the End of the World, is now available for purchase, as is his short story collection, Welcome to Moon Hill. This one's read to you by SkatePod production manager and daytime graphic designer, Matt Weller. Follow him at mattweller.com. So come on in and seat yourself. A server will be with you shortly. We bring you Morning Espresso in the House of Me by Anthony J. Rapino. Larry, my boss, eyes the track marks on my arm. He licks his lips. I'm gonna unlock the door. Get ready. Sure. I go behind the counter and tie an apron around my waist. My arms ache, but I have to ignore it. It's early, and the people want their coffee. Larry opens the door, and three customers walk in. The one man and woman are dressed in business clothes, but the third man, the one making sure to walk just a little faster than the other two, looks like he spent the night in his clothes. He collapses on the counter, leaning across the surface, and stares at my arms until I say, What'll it be? Espresso. Special blend. His lips are cracked and bleeding. His hair is greasy. That's $25. I know. You think I don't know? I point at the counter. Money up front. His face puckers. I, I only have... He digs into his pockets and I hear change jingling. The businessman behind him takes the crumpled bum by the shoulders and leads him out the door. The bum never even gets his hands back out of his pockets before he's tossed onto the street. The woman is queued up and she places $25 on the counter. The special blend. Another two customers wander in. I can tell from the look in their eyes what they want. It's going to be a long day. To the woman I say, right away. When I turn to get the equipment from the shelf, I see Larry standing there, watching me. I go back to the counter. First I take a cotton ball and tip the bottle of chlorhexidine to saturate it. Then I rub the cotton ball on the inside of my left arm. Next, I unwrap a 17-gauge needle and attach a small hose. I crimp the other end with a clip. The woman pushes her blonde hair behind her ears and leans closer to watch. Everyone waits with reverence. They've come to pray at the church of me. I line up a number of espresso cups. I pump my fist a few times. I don't bother with the tourniquet anymore. My veins are plump and ready. I push the needle into my skin, and some of the onlookers gasp and intake a breath like ecstasy. The woman lets a tiny moan slip. The deep black liquid spills from my body and fills the crimped tube. I hold the end over the first cup and release the steaming fluid. As it pours into the cup, the smell of a dark, roast espresso fills the cafe, my special blend. I refasten the clip. The blonde businesswoman wants to grab the cup. Her entire body is bent forward, but she waits for me to lift it to her. She takes it, lowers her eyes, and drinks. She shivers, then steals away to enjoy the rest of her coffee in peace. The businessman is next. He places his money down and I fill his cup. I hold it out to him and he takes it, drinking the entirety of the cup in one gulp. His eyes are on me the entire time, and as if hypnotized, he reaches over the counter and tugs out the needle. My lifeblood drips down my arm. It smells delicious even to me. There is a moment when nothing happens. The man holding the tube seems shocked by his own actions. Ashamed, he is blasphemed in the church of me, but it passes. He opens his mouth and drool drips over his chin. 
The customers behind him are stretching over each other to see. Someone moans. The bum that has been thrown out as if summoned by the promise of my special blend reappears in the doorway of the shop. I have time only to say, don't. The man leaps across the counter and latches onto my bleeding arm. At first he only sucks at the hole, and then he bites, and coffee spills from me. But I don't blame him. The other customers are on me now. I see Larry watching. He grabs the phone, starts to dial, but stops midway. He drops the receiver and joins the others. I don't blame him either. They bite at my every fleshy bit and feed on my body and blood. As I fade, I wonder what they will do when I'm gone. I wonder whose altar they will next pray before. You can always get a hot cup of joe at the Cannibal Diner. And our final story this week is Dead Jimmy and the Selkie by Iswelt Murphy. Mr. Murphy's an associate member of the Horror Writers Association, and his works appeared before, among other places, in Necrotic Tissue, Alien Skin, and The Drabbler. We hope you saved room for dessert. We bring you Dead Jimmy and the Selkie by Iswelt Murphy. You don't expect to find a naked woman on your doorstep at six o'clock in the morning. You might dream about it, but you don't expect it, especially not one screaming blue murder. Where is he? I was still half asleep. Sorry, lady, I think you got the wrong house. She clawed past me. Where's dead Jimmy? I trailed after her, rubbing my eyes. He was dead Jimmy to the world, but Uncle Jimmy to me. What do you want with him? I've got a case. I'm afraid he's tied up at the moment. It was true. I chained him up every night for his safety and mine. She crossed her arms. I'll wait. I shrugged. Suit yourself, but he's not fit for anyone until he's had his breakfast. I gave her my robe and went to get Uncle Jimmy. Morning, Corey, he said when I entered the room. Hey, Uncle Jimmy, how are you doing today? He tried to bite me as I unlocked his chains. Sorry, hungry, he said, looking embarrassed. I patted him on the shoulder. That's all right. We got a visitor. She says she's got a case for you. Tasty, he asked. Being living impaired, my word for zombie, has reduced his judgment of visitors to whether they'd be good to eat or not. Eh, suppose. She stood up when we entered the kitchen. Uncle Jimmy gave her his usual greeting, arms outstretched and mouth wide open. I let him get within sniffing distance. I thought it might scare her and would be revenge for depriving me of my sleep, but Uncle Jimmy recoiled before she did. Not tasty, Cory, he whimpered. I shackled him to the table and went into the pantry to fetch his breakfast. I returned with a plate full of baby mice. I pointed out the location of the bathroom before I gave them to my uncle. She didn't even bat an eyelid as Uncle Jimmy dug into them, which was more than I could say for me. It's interesting to meet you, dead Jimmy. You come highly recommended. My name's Nyam, she said. So why are you here? I asked. 
Something very precious has been stolen from me. I want dead Jimmy to find it. Shouldn't you have called the police? She looked uncomfortable. The item is of a sensitive nature. Selkie, Uncle Jimmy mumbled. What's that? Smelly fish breath, he said. She nodded. He's right. I'm a Selkie, a seal woman, if you prefer. My pelt's gone missing. I couldn't find it for my swim this morning. I need it to transform into my true self. I heard he had a, a talent for finding such things. What do you think, Uncle Jimmy? Will we take the case? I asked. Yep, he slurped, licking his fingers. Niam lived by the ocean. She may not have liked clothes, but she certainly had money. Her home was big, with its own private patch of sand. Uncle Jimmy wrinkled his nose as soon as he stepped into the house. Fish, he said, shaking his head. Where? He waved his arms around. Where's what? she snapped. He wants to know where you kept your seal skin, I interpreted. Follow me. She led us to the bedroom. Like every room in her home, it had floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the sea. It was tastefully decorated in black and white, all steel and silk, apart from a rustic wooden chest that sat at the end of the bed. In there, she said, pointing at the chest. I opened it, and Uncle Jimmy crawled in, sniffing and touching the sides. When did you last have it? I asked, while my uncle did his thing. Yesterday morning, for my daily swim. Uncle Jimmy climbed out of the chest and sprawled across the bed, slipping on the sheets. What'd you do with it after you'd finished your swim? I put it back in the chest, she said. Uncle Jimmy lurched across the bedside locker, knocking objects onto the floor. Easy there, I said, going to help him. He clutched a framed photograph to his chest. It showed Nyam with a small, bald man. He prodded the picture. Who? She sniffed. That's my husband, Ron. Uncle Jimmy bared his teeth. He was trying to smile. Where? He asked. The selkie pursed her lips. At work, I suppose? Uncle Jimmy dropped the photo and walked to the windows. I opened the door and he fell down the steps to the beach. He shambled towards the ocean. Where's he going? He's on the trail, I said. We ran after him. What's up? I asked, jogging beside him. Husband has fishy skin. Going to get him. Uh, he thinks your husband has stolen your seal skin, I translated. Niam swore. Uncle Jimmy waded into the water, disappearing beneath the waves. Well, aren't you going after him? Niam said. Can't swim, I said. Neither could Uncle Jimmy, but it didn't matter. He couldn't drown. We didn't have long to wait before a wet and disheveled zombie crawled up the shore towards the house. He waved something furry at us as we ran towards him. Found, he said, his voice surprisingly clear. Niam snatched the skin from him. She wrung out the fur and examined it carefully. Yes, this is it. Thank you. Come back to the house. I'll, I'll write you a check. Uncle Jimmy and I wandered after her. So, uh, 
Was it her husband who had it? I asked. Splish splash, Uncle Jimmy said, making wave motions with his hand. Didn't make very good fishy breath. So you found him and wrestled the skin from him? Uncle Jimmy nodded. And now he's out there naked in the middle of the ocean? I better call the Coast Guard. Nope. Why? Did he make it back to land? Uncle Jimmy giggled. No. Tasty, he said. And he burped. And that was our trifecta. Hope you thought it was tasty. Remember to tip your servers this evening by going to our donation page off travelcast.org, where you can make a one-time donation in any amount, or subscribe for an automatic 5 or $10 a month. Your money goes towards paying authors for their work, and is both necessary and very appreciated by us. Okay, moving on to our 100-character story this week. First-time winner, Laria Gray, with this one here. My butcher offered me a hand with my parcels, but they never have enough meat to justify picking out all the little bones. One hundred character stories. Try writing one yourself. Post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. Follow us on Twitter at the Drabblecast to get the winners early each week. All right, folks, that's our show. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can't change, can't sell it, but you can share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, blog about us, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Matthew Mattice. Matthew plays music, lives in Brooklyn, and has a beard. He does stuff like the internet and codes or whatever, and it's really nice, really it is, but the beard is the important part. What a display of masculinity. Fantastic. Our program this week was brought to you by Nikki Drayden, managing editor, Nathan Lee, our submissions editor, art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you to try the seahorse. Mm-hmm.